Hey, friends and fam, it's John, and it's time for the JMart Cast for Monday, December 5th. What's going on? How are you? Hope you've had a great week. I've had a pretty fun one. I had a fun Christmas party with some friends that I just came back from. Yesterday night was the party and had a great time just seeing old faces and dancing all night long. And also this week was the end of my November challenge where I was doing um, squats for 20 reps every day. I started with 135 pounds at the beginning of the month in November and ended the end of the month on the 29th actually with 200 pounds for 20 reps. Uh, I was pretty happy with like getting up to that uh, weight to be able to do that many reps. That was pretty much my goal and I was pretty happy to get there, like I already said, and then I was going to test if my one rep max squat would be, um, I guess, significantly improved based on doing those 20 rep uh, sets throughout the month of November. I was hoping that I'd be able to match my previous all-time best for a one rep max, which was 295, but I was actually ended up being 50 pounds short of it. I maxed out at 245 after that I knew I couldn't lift any heavier so I think what I decided to do is to just keep squatting for the for December and now just switching from the high high rep sets to low five to one rep sets and see how high I can bring that 245 number see if I can match the 295 and push past it a little bit uh, for around the end of December we'll see haven't really tried it too too much because I'm just letting my legs recover a little bit because it just felt like a lot to be a, to do 200 pounds for 20 reps on like one day and then the next day to do a one rep max at 245 it was like hurting my hips <laughs> so better now though so I think I'm ready to now that this uh, Christmas party is over this weekend ready to get back to it and do some heavy squats and see if I can get to 300. Let's see. Um, had a good week of training jujitsu. Um, went to class, I think, three times this week, which is great. And um, I'm getting better at uh, arm bars. Um, and I don't know what, what, what I can say about it. Just that uh, you got to go fast, I guess to catch opponents with it and the problem with going fast is then you could actually hurt somebody <laughs> so part of doing arm bars is like you have to do it in a way where you catch the person but also don't injure them so like so much so that you know you stop make them stop and then not be able to train for a long time and then you know, have some sort of revenge or something they want to get get on you. So anyway, I've been practicing a lot of arm bars, but it's always like not sure how applicable this actually is. What I mean is like, so if I'm going slow as I'm practicing it to make sh- to make sure that I'm not really hurting my uh, like person who I'm training with then am I going to actually be able to execute it properly when I need to pull it off? Hopefully, yes, but I don't know. Just You just question it, I guess. Anyway, 
last week, a friend of mine who listened to last week's episode just sent me a quick message about the podcast, and I just thought I'd quickly share it and address one of the points. Uh, first of all, to the person who sent me the message, if you're listening, I appreciate you sending it, and I'm not going to reveal your, your name, just the fact that you sent it to me, just the message that is, and what he said was, hey man, listen to the podcast on my way home. It was a good laugh out loud of the knee words, knee words. I had a story about my wife uh, cutting a, a word off of my knee. He says, no clue that wasn't covered by OHIP. Yeah, when I went to, uh, this is like the second one that I had to get, get lobbed off. But when I went to get it done the first time from my um, family doctor, uh, because they use like liquid nitrogen to kind of get it first before they cut it off. That was like the part that wasn't covered. And anyway, that's when I first learned that it wasn't covered. But so I just said that on the podcast last time and he was like, he didn't know that that was the case. He said, love the letter to your baby daughter. May have to do that for mine as well. So last week I had just shared a small part of my, uh, letter that I wrote to my daughter for her first birthday uh, that I'm going to give to her a lot later when she's like old enough to understand <laughs> for her to read basically. And then the last thing he said is the one the point that I want to address is he was saying nothing wrong with investing in ETFs, LOL. I think like in a sense, yes, you're right. There's actually, I guess you could say there's nothing wrong with it. And part of the reason we think that I think is that because basically this is the way that we have to save money, right? Because if we just hold on to money, as I've said many times before, it gets devalued and the purchasing power is lost. But if you uh, invest in ETFs, generally speaking, over a long enough period of time, the value is increasing. So that way you're not losing the purchasing power of the money you've earned. And instead you're able to uh, maintain with the increase in the price of goods and services over time, which is which is good. This is what, what you want. But what that does is it means that saving is no longer an option. Why? So it's because like we've basically saving is impossible. So we have to invest in, in these ETFs. And now I guess that works in a way, but now what we're doing is giving all our money to these big ass companies like the two main ones are like BlackRock and Vanguard. And through them, you're buying these shares of these ETFs. But in reality, they're the real owners of these shares. And they're the ones that get to have all the uh, voting powers and such. So it's like you're, first of all, you can't save, you have to invest. And then now that you're investing, you're investing in the entire market and you're, you've got a trusted third party that's basically taking the responsibility away from you. And I don't know, I think ultimately you as an individual would make a better choice investing if you were more fully engaged in the decision-making process. And like, I don't know, it just doesn't make sense to be investing immediately as you start making money, right? It, it's, it makes more sense to be saving as you're making money. And then over time, if you've saved enough 
and then you have an interest in something in some sort of business that you might have an expertise in then with the money you've saved you can then invest in that business and then be really engaged in it but the way it works now is it's always like based on loans first of all as soon as you start making money you have to invest it and you know what if you make the wrong investment but i guess you all you get over that hump by just investing in etfs and hope that just over a long enough period of time you're going up anyway and then if you're if you want to start a business instead of having money saved up that you put invest into the business instead you have to take a loan you have to take credit so i don't know this i think i think that's a broken system it's a messed up system it doesn't make sense um but i like it's all it's also like the best we've got at the time like right now it seems like that's the best way to make sure you're not losing too too much money is to just uh, invest in these ETFs. So like, you know, like the, my buddy says, like, there's nothing wrong with it in a sense. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with it, but there's also like some deep systematic problems that like, I think need to be addressed that if they did, then wouldn't be necessary to invest in just across the board ETFs. Anyway, that's just like my opinion, man. <laughs> Going to do a quick Bitcoin update. Then I'm going to read a little bit, uh, kind of history, I guess you could say. And then that'll be it for today's podcast episode. Okay. So block height, what block height are we on? 765,927 price of one Bitcoin is trading at 17,206 us dollars for one us dollar. You can buy 5,812 Satoshis. That is the smallest unit. A Bitcoin can be subdivided into one Bitcoin subdivides 100 million times each one of those is called a satoshi named after the creator of bitcoin which is just a pseudonym we don't actually know who that is but his name or pseudonym was uh satoshi nakamoto and those uh small subunits are called sats or satoshis satoshis or sats for short if you're interested in buying bitcoin and you live in canada i recommend using ShakePay, which is an exchange that will uh take your regular dollars and let you buy Bitcoin. And then from there, you'd have to uh, take that into self-custody. At least that's what I'd recommend. If you don't know how, I'm available for help for that. <laughs> but anyway, if you want to use ShakePay, I have a referral code in the description of the podcast that uh, gives you a $10 reward for $100 spent on your first Bitcoin. Okay, I'm going to read a passage from... Part three from the Fiat Cave Substack. Uh, part three from an allegory of monetary deception. So this is talking about how in the Great Depression or like after the Great Depression happened, there was a lot of economic upheaval, obviously, which led to gold flowing out of the banking system. So in response to the gold leaving the banks, on April 5th, 1933, President Franklin D. Roosevelt issued Executive Order 6102. In this order, it required that all persons are required to deliver on or before May 1st, 1933, all gold coin, gold bullion, and gold certificates now owned by them to a Federal Reserve Bank 
branch or agency or to an or to any member of the Federal Reserve. Should anyone be found with gold in their custody, the penalty was a $10,000 fine or 10 years imprisonment or both. Executive Order 6102 eliminated people's rights to own real money, gold, to avoid imprisonment. People had to turn their gold to the government at the official rate of $20.67, and there was no longer a way for individuals to protect themselves against the devaluation of the currency due to fractional reserve banking. The following year, the U.S. passed the Gold Reserve Act of 1934, which devalued the dollar by increasing the price of gold from $20.67 per ounce to $35 per ounce. So, yeah, so basically what they did is they forced people to give their gold to the government in return for paper money, and then they decreed that the gold was worth more uh, in paper money than how much they gave people for it. And <laughs> oh man, this is ridiculous, right? This happened in nineteen thirty in the nineteen thirties, like ninety years ago. By revaluing gold, the government was able to create more dollars, further inflating the money supply. This act by the U.S. government was no different than the Roman emperors creating more money by themselves for themselves by issuing coins of gold and silver mixed with base metals such as copper. Following the Second World War, the leaders of the developed nations met in Bretton Woods, Bretton Woods in New Hampshire in 1944, to create a new international financial system. The Bretton Woods system was structured with the U.S. dollar at the center. Before and during the Second World War, many countries sent their gold to the U.S. to protect it from the conflict in Europe. Since the U.S. had the gold, the U.S. dollar was directly pegged to the gold at $35 an ounce, and all other fiat currencies were pegged to the dollar. The Bretton Woods system worked for a while until European nations wanted to repatriate their gold. France specifically was concerned about the U.S. spending during the 1960s, mainly the Vietnam War and the Great Society Plan. The U.S. debt had skyrocketed, and there were doubts that the U.S. had sufficient gold reserves to back the spending. After the U.S. bluff was called, on August 15, 1971, President Nixon decided to close the gold window, meaning that countries that had deposited gold with the U.S. as part of the Bretton Woods monetary system had their gold stolen. President Nixon blamed international currency speculators for his decision to suspend temporarily the convertibility of the dollar into gold. However, it was clear to those paying attention that this was a default on the U.S. obligations under the Bretton Woods system. Due to the massive spending plans that the U.S. uh, embarked on, there were far more dollars created than gold held in reserves. Yeah, so basically they had two defaults. First, the default was in the 1930s when all the money was leaving the banking system uh, like in the United States itself. And then the U.S. citizens were cut off from accessing real money, accessing real gold. And you could no longer hold gold yourself and only the federal government itself was allowed to be uh, the one that could have gold in its possession. and But then other international 
governments could still exchange or convert their dollars for gold. But then they defaulted on that as well in the 1970s. So then, yeah, all this gold that these countries had sent to the U.S. to protect for them, well, they were so well protected that they never got it back. <laughs> yeah, there's a crazy part of history that doesn't really get taught in schools, I feel like, because, uh, I don't know, right? Maybe it's too dangerous for people to ask questions about money. Anyway, that's all I'm going to talk about this week. Keep it short. I feel like I prefer these short episodes anyway. Thank you everybody for taking the time and listening to the Jmartcast. As I always say, I appreciate you all very much. Thank you for uh, supporting me and sending me messages every now and again. And please continue to keep listening, continue to share the episodes, and rate it if you haven't done so already. All right. I love you all. Have a great week. Stay active. Be grateful. Jmart out.